You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Amen. Church, you may be seated. And good morning. It's good to be with you in this way today. We're going to be in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. We're continuing on in our series in the book of James. And as you're turning there, James 2, verse 14, you can begin turning there. I want to start off our time by talking about a figure in history named Martin Luther. And uh, many of you, I'm sure, have heard the name Martin Luther. He is credited as being the one who lit the fuse on the movement that is now known as the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther was born in the late 1400s, lived in the 1500s, and he was by no means a perfect man, uh, but he was a very important figure and was a very important voice at an important time in the history of Christianity. So Martin Luther was a German monk and went on to become a priest in the Catholic Church. And one of the things that Martin Luther began to see as he began his ministry in the Catholic Church, as he looked around, he began to see that a false teaching started to corrupt the church and would lead to abuse some of its people. And it was teaching a salvation of works along with other extra things that it was adding, things like indulgences and penances and absolutions and all of these different things. And as Martin Luther began to read his Bible... He was saying, that's not in here. I'm not seeing what the church is teaching. And it began to fill him with a zeal and a courage to do something about it. And so he wrote out 95 problems, 95 theses, 95 corrections. And on a famous day, he nailed his 95 theses to the front of the church on the door. And that is what sparked the movement known as the Protestant Reformation. And as time went on, he and his colleagues continued to write and to work and to correct. And they wrote what we know as the five solas. And the five solas say this, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed through scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. We affirm these, and these were direct responses to the errant teaching of the Catholic Church. As Luther goes on in his ministry, he starts preaching through different books of the Bible, and he gets to the book of James, specifically the passage that we're looking at today, and he does not like what he sees. In light of his background correcting that salvation is not from works, he reads phrases in our text today that go something like this, faith without works is dead. Abraham was justified by his works. You see, a person is justified by works and not faith alone. How could these statements be compatible with his life's work? These five solas that we rightly affirm seem to be in conflict with some of the sentences that we're going to look at today. And so that's what we get to look at. How do faith and works go together? So I can be clear right off the start, the Bible teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Your works cannot and do not save you. But James is about to lay out an argument that says you cannot separate saving faith from good works. And so the title of our sermon today is, I need a faith that works. It's a bit of a double meaning. I need a faith that works. I need a faith that accomplishes something, that accomplishes my eternal salvation. 
But it also means I need a faith that moves me to act, that moves me to do. I need a faith that works. And so that is how we're going to look at things today. And so um, it is, to quote one other reformer that is very helpful, this, this one quote could really summarize our entire sermon today. It is John Calvin that is credited with this sentence. It is faith alone that saves, but faith that saves is never alone. I'll say that again. It is faith alone that saves, but faith that saves is never alone. And so today, if you look around and you look at your life, and you're not seeing the works of righteousness, you should be concerned. So today is a day of evaluation. Today is a day of assessment. We're going to hold up God's word and see what it's saying and say, does my life demonstrate what I'm seeing in Scripture? What kind of faith do I have? And I urge you today to take nothing for granted because the stakes of how we answer that question are of eternal significance. What kind of faith do I have? Do I have a faith that works? Last week, Pastor Robbie, he laid out um, a bit of a context for us. This is the first time that James slows down. He double taps, zooms in on a specific argument. And so this week is in many ways a continuation of what was going on last week. It's also important before we jump in to understand that James is addressing a specific problem at a specific place, at a specific time. There's a reason that he's about to say the things that he's going to say. Clearly, people that he was writing to were not living out their faith the way that they were supposed to. They had no feet to their faith. And so James is about to lay out an argument that says faith must include works. And our text is going to give us three reasons why that is true, and that's going to be our outline today. So our outline answers the question, why must my faith include works? And that leads us to point number one, and it says this, because without it, I'm dead. Because without it being works, without it, I am dead. So let's look down now at verse 14 and see where I'm getting that. It says this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay, let's get after it. So James starts by laying out a scenario that is showing us how useless a faith without works really is. He asks a rhetorical question of, what good is it? What good is this kind of faith? And the answer is, it's no good. Faith without works is like a guitar without strings. It's like a car without an engine. It's like um, a basketball net without a rim. It's like a PlayStation without a controller. Okay? These things aren't just nice additions. Without these things, they are totally useless. And so it is with our faith. If our faith does not have works... It is utterly useless. And more than that, it is dead. He describes a person that, this is important, says they have faith, but does not have works. It doesn't say they have genuine faith. This person believes they have faith, but they have zero evidence of fruit in their life. And again, notice the wording, can that faith save him? Not can actual faith, can true faith save them. This 
can the type of faith, this self-deceived faith that has no evidence of transformation, save him? And again, the answer is no. So when James uses the word faith, let's define some terms here. When James uses the word faith, he means, as we're going to see below, belief in the one true God. There's clearly an implied distinction between saving faith and dead faith. Saving faith is a belief that has led to a transformed heart that is moved to act. Our works, then, are actions that we do as believers that flow out of a renewed heart that loves Jesus. To put it simply, works are a good tree bearing good fruit. So James is saying that a workless faith is a non-saving faith, which means it's a dead faith. Why does he say that? Well, he goes on to give us an illustration of how useless a dead faith really is. And I love the example that he gives. And so to be good Bible students, what we're going to do is we're going to do our part to live in the text. And we're going to make this hit a little closer to home. So I want us to just imagine, right? We're going to live in the text right now. Imagine that you're over at a friend's house for dinner. And let's say this is taking place in the Canadian winters of negative 10. That is absolutely awful. And you're over for dinner at a friend's house. We live in Hamilton, so you're over at a house in Hamilton. Dinner is being made. The smell of dinner is filling the house. And maybe you're having a pre-dinner coffee, and you know, you're, just, you're warm, the smell is there. And then this man approaches your friend's door, and he knocks on the door. And so your friend goes, and he opens the door, and you can see that this man is um, in need. His clothes are shabby, there's holes everywhere, his hair is, is all over the place, there's maybe some dirt on his face, he doesn't have a coat, but this man has mustered up the courage to approach your friend's door, and he asks for help, and he says, I'm, I'm hungry and I'm cold, can you help me? And your friend responds, and he says, man, are you in luck? I'm actually a Christian. And in this moment, the man, his eyes maybe light up because he thinks he's going to get something. He's going to get some help from this Christian. And then your friend holds out his hand and he says, the Lord bless you. May he keep you warm. May he fill your stomach. Now go away. Like if you're sitting there, you're, you're, you're chuckling because you're like, well, that is useless. That is not helpful. And in actuality, you'd probably grieve your heart because that grieves the Father's heart. And if we are truly saved in Christ... We feel what the Father feels, and we know that isn't right. And let me just tell you, this man would have some words for you, okay? Because you sent him away without meeting the needs when you could have. And so Charles Spurgeon, he has a helpful quote on this. He says, Zealous words will not warm the cold. Delicate words will not feed the hungry. The freest speech will not set free the captive or visit him in prison. And the most adorned words will not clothe the naked. And the words that are the most full of unction will not pour oil and wine into the wounds of the sick. Hear this. Words, words, words. Chaff, chaff, chaff. If there is no act, there is no sympathy. If there is no works, there is no love. There is no faith. True believers in Jesus have the heart of Jesus we cannot look upon the needs of others with indifference. It's not possible. And you think back even to last week, true faith 
does not show partiality, does not favor the wealthy at the expense of the poor. And so what James is saying is not only is this faith, this dead faith without works unhelpful, it is evidence that your faith is dead altogether. So what is dead faith? Faith that is dead is not genuine faith having a bad week. Dead faith is not genuine faith that has missed an opportunity to serve someone. Dead faith is insincere faith. It is non-saving faith. It is a mental acknowledgement that something is true that has no transformed heart, no personal relationship with Jesus, no repentance, no taking up your cross and following Jesus. That is a dead faith. And hear me, if your faith is dead, that means you are dead. The person that has this kind of faith, this dead faith, will spend eternity apart from God. And if you think that that's a bit harsh, let's look at the words of Jesus, who also is not pulling any punches on us this morning. From Matthew 25 on the screen, it says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Wow. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer, saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, and not minister to you? And then he says this. He will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Like, these are heavy words, It seems like Jesus cares a lot about what we do. Do you see that? And even this week, as I'm like, as I'm sitting here and I'm studying this, like conviction is weighing up in me because I'll go first. I think Jesus cares a lot more about this than I do. What about you? So how do we respond to some of this heavy, convicting passages about what we do Well, I want us to take a few questions under consideration that we can ask regarding the nature of my faith. We can get that on the screen. Has my faith, it's time for some self-assessment, has my faith led me to speak about Jesus in any of my conversations with believers? Let's just survey the last few months of our lives, okay? In the last few months, has my faith led me to speak about Jesus in a way that has potential to cost me something? Have I shared my faith in the last few months? Next. Has my faith led me to meet any physical or felt needs of those around me? Like that is the heart of what James is going after right now. And some of you say, well, I can't meet every need. Well, have you met any need in the last couple months? Again, 
conviction upon myself. Next, has my faith led me to give up my time to serve in any ministries? So Pastor Robbie was mentioned this last week, and as I was thinking about this, I have a picture for us, okay? One of the metaphors that Scripture uses to describe what this is is that the church is the family of God. And if the church is a family, then this is Sunday brunch. And it takes a lot of effort and work to put on Sunday brunch. And the reality is that there have been many of us who have been attending Sunday brunch week after week, month after month after year. And we've never offered to do the dishes. We've never offered to set the table. We've never offered to watch the kids. We've never offered to help make the meal. Has your faith led you to desire to serve the body of Christ in your local church that you call home? This is your first time here. We're not speaking to you. We're speaking to those who call this your church home and you have not served. There's dishes to be done, family. And so you might need a gentle tapping to volunteer to do the dishes. Has your faith led you, not out of obligation, but because you love your family and you recognize how good we have it and you just desire, I want to help the family. I'm going to step up. I'm going to let my faith lead me to serve. Next. Has my faith led me to say no to something that I know grieves the Father's heart? So it isn't just about what we do. Our faith should impact the things that we don't do. Have there been opportunities this week, this last couple months, that you know grieve the Father's heart and that your faith has led you to say, no, I'm not going to go do that with that group. I'm not going to drink this. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to live however I want. I'm going to live in a way that honors the Father's heart. Lastly, has my faith led me to personal worship of Jesus? Not just Sunday morning worship. Have there been times over the last few months where you have had God's word open and you see Jesus as being supremely beautiful and you have a sincere emotional response of love and affection to him? If you have not had this for months and years and years and years, like you should be very concerned. Now, there's some of us in this room that have the opposite problem and we're relying on these things thinking that doing this saves us. Because I do these things, I'm saved. No, no, no. I am saved and therefore I do these things. Yes, yes, yes. There's a huge difference we are not earning our salvation, but our faith is taking a control of our heart and is leading us to act. Remember, one more time on the screen for us. It is faith alone that saves, and that faith that saves is never alone. In fact, why don't we read that out loud together? That's good. Let's read that. It is faith alone that saves, but faith that saves is never alone. I pray that that's helpful to you in understanding what we're getting at right here. We're going to examine the relationship between faith and works in just a second. Point one was, faith must include works because without it I am dead. And now point number two, why must my faith include works? Because it proves my salvation. Because it proves my salvation. Let's look down at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So James is anticipating a hypothetical objector to what the argument is that he's just laid out in the first point, and so he makes it himself. He says, some of you are going to say, why can't faith be my thing and works be your thing? Why do you have to focus so much on what I do? Isn't it enough that I just believe the right things? And James's response is so clever, and he says, well, show me the evidence of what you believe. One of the reasons that it's so clever is because faith by itself is inherently an unseen thing. How can you see a belief? And therefore, this person cannot prove their faith. James is asking, show me the proof. Now, I could illustrate this, um, and I'm not saying this, but if I was to yell fire at the top of my lungs, the evidence that you believed what I'm saying, that you were in an existential threat, would be that you stand up and you leave. If you sat there and you nodded your head and you just stayed, it would be pretty clear to me that you do not believe, you do not have faith that what I'm saying is true because, hear me, true belief leads to action. And this example helps us understand the way that James thinks works is in relationship to faith theologically. James makes it clear all the way along, works are not the grounds of your salvation, but the proof of your salvation. A commentator on the screen for us says it helpfully. It is important to note that the formula is not faith plus works equals salvation. James does not say that works need to be added to faith in order for one to be saved. Faith is inherently either dead or alive. If it is alive, it contains works organically in itself and thus overflows with them in the visible world. So if you're sitting here today and we're walking through some of this assessment, I'm saying look at your own life and you're not seeing the fruit, you're not seeing the proof, you're not seeing the evidence of a changed heart, the answer isn't to start doing a bunch of new works. The answer is to ask for a new faith. The answer is for you to turn and give your life to Christ in a saving way because what will happen is he will change the desires of your hearts and then these works will flow out of your heart organically as outward proof that something has changed inside. Two verses that have been helpful that you know very well, John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The person who is abiding, who is connecting, who has a saving faith in Jesus, he it is, she it is, that bears much fruit. Next, Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is, you know this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. A person who has the Spirit living inside of them produces fruit that looks like this. Again, I say, if you do not see this as a regular pattern of your life, you should be concerned. Our works are the fruit of our salvation, and James is actually raising the stakes. He's saying it isn't just the fruit, 
It's the proof. It's the proof that you are saved. He then goes on in his response to this hypothetical objector, and he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. So what's going on here? This is a simplified version of what we know as the Shema found in Deuteronomy 6. The Shema became like a Jewish creed of what they would believe, and many of them would say it twice a day. It was James's way of taking the most common verse that people would affirm and saying, hey, you can believe the Shema, but that isn't enough. Even the demons believe the same message, but they shudder because they know that they are going to hell. Knowing that God is real is not enough to save you. Knowing that God is real is not enough to save you. Hey, just because you know John 3.16 off by heart does not mean the message of John 3.16 has made it to your heart. There is a vast difference between knowing something and having it change you on the inside. And like, this is where it gets real. Um, a little bit about me. I was, um, I was born in a Christian family. I was like born and then day two, I'm like in a pew at the church. And I went to Christian school my whole life. We were at church like 17 times a week, um, or so it felt. And what happened is as I began to have a lot of friends that would profess faith in Christ, and over the years, what troubled me so much is their lives just didn't show that it was real. And when I talk to them time and time again, what I'm seeing is that some of these friends are holding on to an experience from their past, and they're saying, I just, I know I'm saved, yet their life is, they're living in reckless abandon, totally ignoring the, the ways of God. They're not coming to church. They're not loving Jesus, so it seems. And so what James is saying is like, this person should not be so certain that eternity is gonna go well for them. And there's some of you in this room right now that are holding on to a decision that you made at a youth winter camp five years ago because it was an emotional decision, but if you look at the fruit of your life, you don't see that you are a regenerated Christian. And my great fear is that there's many in this room who have a false assurance of their salvation. And so James is holding up a massive sign that says, proceed with caution when answering this question. Some of us have been baptized when we were young, and we're holding on to this experience saying, well, I, I know God is real, and, and, and I did this thing, and, but year after year after year, the demonstration of your life is that you do not have a saving faith in Christ. I plead with you today, be slow with blanket affirmations that you know that eternity is going to go well for you. Look at the fruit. Look at the proof of your life. If you are in this camp right now and you're saying, I just, I don't know that I'm saved. Well, praise God you're asking that question on this side of eternity. There is still time. There is still time for you to place your saving, real, living faith in Jesus Christ. You can repent of your sin. You can repent of your ways and he will give you a new heart. And then your de desires will change and you will start to want the right things. Not perfectly, but increasingly. You will want the things of God and you will see proof in your life of your salvation. Faith must include works as proof that I am saved. And now point three. Why must my faith include works? Because the Bible says so. 
Don't you love that argument? Because the Bible says so. So James shifts from the hypothetical to the historical, and he has two figures, Abraham and Rahab, that are going to demonstrate that works were an integral part of proving their faith. Verse 20, let's read. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that's nice, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Wow. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Last verse. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. All right. If you've been reading your Bible a long time, there's some sentences in there that we got to do some work on. There's some sentences that seem pretty troubling when you have a robust systematic theology and you understand some of these things. And to be honest, there were times this week when I'm reading these verses and I'm like, I think I'm uncomfortable with this. Like, this is in God's word. This is in James chapter two and we have to deal with this. And it's so wonderful when we get into it. But he starts by giving the example of Abraham when he offered Isaac on the altar and he says that he was justified by his works. So here is what we need to work through carefully because it seems like Paul says something different in Romans 4 on the screen for us. This is Paul saying, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh, according to the works? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed, Abraham had faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul seems to be saying something a little different. Let's see James 2 on the screen right now. Was not Abraham our father justified, there's that word again, by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So Paul seems to be saying Abraham was not justified by his works, but he was justified by faith. And James seemed to be saying Abraham was justified by works. Are these two things incompatible? That's what we need to deal with. Does James contradict Paul? The short answer is no. So the question is, how are these things true at the same time? Well, the first thing to understand this is that Paul was correcting a specific problem in a specific church that he was addressing in Rome and Galatia. And James was also correcting a specific problem in a specific place. Tom Schreiner, he's a New Testament scholar and commentator, he says this, helpfully, that Paul was addressing an issue of legalism and James was addressing an issue of antinomianism. Antinomianism just means anti, against, namas, law. So people could believe and then they just didn't have to follow the law. So in Paul's context, people were believing that they were saved because they were circumcised and because they were following the Mosaic law and so Paul was saying, no, salvation is through faith alone. You are not saved by your works. You are not saved through circumcision. You are not saved by following the Mosaic law. And James was addressing a people who had no feet to their faith. They were just confessing something and living however they wanted to live. And he's saying it's not enough to merely profess Christ. Your faith must have proof of good works. 
So there's two different authors addressing two different problems in two different people. That's the start. That doesn't get us all the way there, though, because they both use a pretty significant word called justification. So one of the things that we need to do as good Bible students is understand that certain authors in Scripture use words in different ways. Just like we can't take the meaning of a word in our 21st century and impose it back, we also cannot assume that when Paul uses a word that it's used in the exact same way with James. This gets increasingly difficult when we have some of these theological words that we've learned definitions for that are so right and helpful, but we need to approach Scripture carefully and we need to ask this question. What does this author mean with this word at this time? When we ask these sorts of questions as we read Scripture, we get a lot closer to understanding what the author was trying to communicate. And so when Paul uses the word justification in Romans 4, he means a legal declaration of being right before God. That's the, tr- the, the definition most of us would know. When James is using the word justification, it means to show righteousness, to demonstrate righteousness. So you have two different people, two different problems, and then you have two different senses of the same word, and then lastly, they're referencing two different historical events. So the last piece of the puzzle is that Paul in Romans 4 is alluding to the moment that Abraham, hear me, was legally declared righteous before God when he believed, when he had faith, and that was in Genesis 15. James is referring to a time much later that Abraham was giving evidence of this salvation when he offered Isaac on the altar, and that was in Genesis 22. Both Paul and James rightly affirm that we cannot inherit the kingdom without works of righteousness. We need to demonstrate our faith. Another way of saying it that you've heard is that justification always, always leads to sanctification. Both Paul and James rightly affirm this to be true. But in verse 22, James says that faith was active alongside his works and that faith was completed by his works. So that word completed is essential here. Abraham was declared righteous before God when he believed, but this faith was completed or shown to be real when his works demonstrated his saving faith. We keep reading, it says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, so hear me right now. This is important. The proof that Genesis 15, Abraham's salvation, the proof that this is real is found in Genesis 22, Abraham's obedience. Abraham's salvation led to Abraham's obedience. Abraham's faith led to Abraham's works. I know it's repetitive, but it's worth being clear. Rahab is the next illustration here, and it says that Rahab, she's from Joshua 2, the prostitute that hid the spies that came into Jericho because she believed in the one true God, her actions demonstrating her sincere belief in God. Rahab's salvation led to Rahab's works. The last verse in our section says this, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So just like our bodies are dead, if there's no air in our lungs, our faith is dead without works. 
I know this is a bit of a, a technical section to work through, but the Bible is so explicitly clear that everything that we do flows from our hearts. Our hands flow from our hearts. Our feet flow from our faith. Our conduct from our conscience. Everything flows from our hearts. And so the question again for us is what kind of faith do I have? Do I have a saving faith or do I have a dead faith? And so that's really what the purpose of a message like this really is, is is how do we respond? Well, we respond with a time of reflection and a time of assessment. Again, taking nothing for granted because I believe that in a room this size, there are people who have false assurances of, the, of their salvation that they are hanging on to. And so wisdom today looks like, let's look at the argument, let's look at the proof. What does my life say? So I want us to take some time, one last time, we're going to go through a list of questions here. Do I have a faith that works? That's the question. Do I have a faith that accomplishes something? Number one, do I believe in the message of the gospel? Like, it all starts there. Do I believe that Jesus came and lived a perfect, sinless life, and that he died on the cross in my place for my sin, that he was crucified, dead, and buried, and rose again on the third day? Do I believe that that message is true? Next question. Do I have a sincere, personal love of Jesus Christ? We have asked this before, and it's worth reiterating. Do you have times in your life where you well up with love and affection for Jesus? Yes, within your personality and disposition, but do you have a love for Jesus? Next, do I have works in my life that are the proof that my faith is real? Just think about it. As Pastor Robbie so helpfully said, can Christians have bad weeks? Yes. Bad months? Yes. Bad year? Maybe. Can they have bad decades? No. Scripture's pretty clear. If you do not have the evidence of saving faith in your life, you should be very, very concerned. Do you see the works that are proof in your life that your faith right now is real? Next. Do I see patterns of repentance and an awareness of sin in my life. One of the greatest evidences of a believer is that they see their sin the way God sees it. If you have not been broken over your sin, it's not because there's not sin. It's because you don't have eyes to see it. And in Matthew it says to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance ought to be the pattern of a believer's life. So one of the works that we're called to evaluate today is do I see genuine brokenness over my sin? Do I see my sin the way God sees my sin? That is worth pondering. If you answer all of these questions, and the Holy Spirit I'm praying right now is just applying with laser precision and helping you. If you answer these questions, no. Again, praise the Lord that we're having this conversation now. If the answer is no and you realize that your faith is in fact dead, the answer for you is to place a sincere faith in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin, repent, and place your faith and trust in Jesus. And again, he will produce good works in and through you through a renewed heart. But if this is where you're at, I just urge you today, you do not leave this place without having a conversation. Please, 
talk to somebody, come pray with somebody. We want to help you work through this. And again, if you say, yes, I'm, I'm aware we're in a, a church and many, many of us have saving faith in Jesus, mature believers, yes. How do we respond to something like this? Well, I think it's entirely appropriate for us to say, Lord, would you give me more works? Not to my glory, to your glory. Would you increase the good works of my life, the fruit of my life? Would you give me an increased sensitivity to those around me that I can step in and meet some of the needs that I'm seeing on a day day-to-day basis? Would you increase my good works for your glory, not for mine? Again, I pray, today is a day of assessment. It is of the utmost importance. Eternity does hang in the balance. And so one last time, it's worth saying that it is faith alone that saves. But faith that saves is never alone. Amen? Let's pray. And so, Father, right now, we are indeed asking you to move in this place, to move in our hearts. I pray for those in the room right now who are hearing this, who are wrestling in their heart right now, who are struggling, and they say, I can't answer all those questions the right way, and that scares me. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move and you would bring conviction upon their life, that you would save some right now in Jesus' name that they would realize, I need a living faith. Please, Holy Spirit, move in this way right now. And for those of us right now who are believers in Christ and we look around and you just know, like, my works have not been where they need to be, I pray for a sincere work of the Spirit in our hearts to say, Jesus, our highest desire right now is that you would receive glory from my life that you would be magnified in my life by what I do and the things I don't do, that you would truly be pleased with my conduct, you'd be pleased with my speech, you'd be pleased with my actions, because that in and of itself is a demonstration of worship before you. So Holy Spirit, would you move in power as only you can? We love you. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together in song.